I want to turn there. Matthew 5, 1 through 12, uh, the Beatitudes. And let's ask the Lord to bless our time in the Word. Lord, we thank you now for the, the Word of God. And uh, Lord, we ask that you might minister to our hearts as we study together. And uh, we thank you for this, uh, this wonderful uh, Sermon on the Mount that you gave uh, and the things that we can glean from it as far as how we should live as your people. Uh, those who are headed ultimately for the kingdom. And so, Lord, uh, bless the ministry of the word as it goes forth now, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Matthew. The theme is Christ the King. We are in this section right here in chapters 5 through 7, the pronouncements of the king, uh, proving his judicial right to the throne as seen in the wisdom of his kingdom teaching. Well, Matthew wrote with a Jewish audience in mind, and he wrote to show them that Jesus is their prophesied Messiah King. As I say, the theme of Matthew with the Jewish audience is Christ the King. Matthew wrote thematically, presenting various lines of evidence to show that this is true, that he is the prophesied Messiah King. Well, in chapter 4, Matthew shows that the Galilean ministry of Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament prophecy from Isaiah 9, 1 and 2. There it was prophesied that Galilee of the Gentiles would see a great light, which in context was the Messianic light. Well, Matthew shows that Christ's message in this context was a call to repentance, because the kingdom was at hand. It was being presented. The king was now present, and the kingdom was now being offered by him on the condition of repentance. Well, Matthew then went on to show that Christ uniquely did kingdom miracles, kingdom miracles of healing, to verify that indeed he was the true Messiah in keeping with the prophetic scriptures. Now, what was unique about Christ's miracles? what I call his kingdom miracles, a sample of the kingdom in effect, well, he healed everyone. He healed them of everything. And he did so on a massive scale that included masses of people from regions far and wide. It wasn't just a local setting. We have some of that happening with the apostles later in a different context. But on the scale that Jesus did, no one ever did that before or after. This was kingdom stuff. This was the work of the king presenting his kingdom credentials. Now we noted last time in chapter 4, Matthew 4, 23. Whoops. I'm in a hurry. Matthew 4, 23. Uh, there describes Jesus' messianic ministry as including three things. It's Galilean ministry uh, emphasized teaching preaching, and healing. Now let me ask you, uh, you're a small audience, but you're very thoughtful, I can tell this morning. You're thinking, how long is he going to go on? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, we're just getting started here. Uh, which one of these three, we're talking teaching, preaching, and healing, which one of these three really jumps out at you? Which of these three really emphasizes the kingly, messianic nature of Jesus in keeping with the coming kingdom? Well, we would probably want to emphasize, uh, you know, the teaching, the preaching, yes, the but the healing, right? That's what's emphasized here. All kinds of sickness, all kinds of disease among the people. His fame went out throughout Syria. They brought to him all sick, afflicted with various diseases, torments, those who were demon-possessed, uh, and so forth. And he healed them. All sick, he healed them. That's what's kind of standing out here in this immediate context here. And certainly, universal healing was one major evidence that Jesus was the promised Messiah. Nobody could do this like Jesus did it. But what about his equally unique teaching ministry? The Messiah's teaching ministry prophetically was to be so unique as to also be a major messianic credential. 
Note uh, this prophecy, Messianic context, clearly, in Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 2. And we read there, Of the Messiah, the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. What kind of a spirit is it going to be? The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. So I want you to uh, note this connection here. Uh, Christ began by saying, repent for the kingdom is at hand. And then that's followed up with this emphasis on teaching and preaching. Yes, healing too, but I think really he's saying repent. And now he's going to unpack that in his teaching ministry and say, here's what, it, here's what it's all about. Here's what repentance looks like. And that's what we have in the kingdom ethics presented in chapters 5 through 7. John Phillips says, we have now come to the famous Sermon on the Mount. There is nothing to compare with it in all the literature of the world. We're on sacred ground here, folks. Even the greatest of the world's moral, religious, and philosophical statements blush and stammer in the presence of this sublime declaration. How true that is. Now, when Jesus got done teaching what we call the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7, what was the response? Well, we read about it in Matthew chapter 7, 28, 29. So it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching. They were astonished at his teaching. This, it blew their minds. It blew them away. Why? For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. You see, he taught them with the authority of the Messianic king, which he was. Thus, his profound, part excellent teaching was a major evidence that he was indeed the king presenting the kingdom. His miracles proved that he was the king presenting the kingdom. His teaching also verified that he was the king presenting the kingdom, presenting a kingdom ethic. Uh, in effect, that which will govern his reign. But again, what is the significance of this teaching? Well, scholars have long debated the exact significance of it. Moody Bible Commentary says, The Sermon on the Mount is probably the most famous of all the teachings of Christ, but it is difficult to determine exactly what the purpose is. Well, that's pretty, pretty common statement there. People say, well, what is exactly does it mean? Some say, well, I think it's, it shows you how to be saved. Others say, no, 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 that's not it. Others say, well, no, it, it, it's kingdom teaching applies only to the kingdom in the future. No, no, they say, no, 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 that's not it. Uh, it also has application. Round and round and round we go. How should we understand this? Well, I think if we think in context, realizing the thematic format of Matthew, I don't know that it should be that difficult. Matthew does not simply go from chapter 4 to chapter 5 without design. There is a connection here. The message in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7 continues on with the kingdom theme. That's what we're talking about. The kingdom theme. The Sermon on the Mount does not present the way of salvation, but rather presents kingdom ethics, which are indicative of the repentance called for by Christ in view of the kingdom being at hand. The Sermon on the Mount really amounts to a detailed explanation of what true repentance looks like in the lives of those prepared to enter the kingdom. Uh, note this quote uh, from the Bible Knowledge Commentary. <clears throat> Jesus' sermon, therefore, must be understood in the context of his offer of the kingdom to Israel and the need for repentance to enter the kingdom. Well, that's a great statement right there. The sermon showed how a person who is right in right relationship with God, I insert a true repenter, should now conduct his life. The sermon applies to Jesus' followers today for it demonstrates the standard of kingdom righteousness God demands of his kingdom citizens. There is a kingdom ethic, if you will, applied to the church today as seen in the New Testament. And I will develop this as we go along in our message this morning. We can only live out this kingdom ethic by the power of the Holy Spirit as seen in accordance with the new covenant, which is indicative of kingdom reality. 
as, as God in the new in the kingdom will enter into the new covenant relationship with his people, as we see elsewhere. But we are already under that new covenant. And what's the key to the new covenant? Uh, It's the Holy Spirit. As God's people, we have the Holy Spirit today. So as God's people, we are kingdom people and we are to live accordingly. The kingdom is not here yet because the king's not here yet. But we are to live in light of it as those whose citizenship is ultimately going to be in the kingdom. In chapter 4, Jesus lays down the necessity of repentance to enter the kingdom, as we saw in 4.17. Now in chapters 5 through 7, he lays out those, how those truly repentant should live and what is to characterize their lives. This kingdom ethic, as I call it, is what defines those who are truly repentant. Now, certainly, you know, there's, there's degrees of maturity, immaturity, and, we, and we, we struggle, we have the flesh, and all that's true. But uh, this is really what it means, what it should look like to live out repentance in light of the coming kingdom. Howard Voss says this, the purpose, of the, the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount, which is not to present the way of salvation, but principles of character and conduct for those who are members of the kingdom who already belong to Christ. You see, the Sermon on the Mount assumes you've responded to the message of repentance in chapter 4. Now how should we then live? Chapters 5 through 7. As kingdom citizens, this is how God's people should live, as so instructed by the king. A couple of footnotes. First, Matthew 5 through 7 is the first of five major discourses in Matthew. In addition to chapters 5 through 7, the the Sermon on the Mount discourse. And and really, probably better called discourse than sermon. But it's commonly known as Sermon on the Mount, so we'll continue to call it that. But uh, you have that discourse in chapters 5 through 7. Then also chapter 10, chapter 13, chapters 18 through 20, and chapters 24 through 25. Five separate discourses. Second, the discourse in Matthew 5 through 7 has similarities to what has been called the Sermon on the Plain in Luke 6, verses 17 through 49. But it also has dissimilarities. And so the scholars debate here uh, as to whether these are two different sermons on two different occasions or whether they just overlap in terms of content. And you can make a good argument for either case. It's kind of uncertain. Well, let's pick it up. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 1. We begin now, as I say, uh, to enter into the greatest sermon ever given. Uh, what, a, what a powerful sermon it is. Matthew 5 verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he had, was seated, his disciples came to him. Now some see two different groups here. Namely, the multitudes in one group, and the disciples, his disciples in another Now, Luke 6, 17, if it is a parallel passage, Luke 17 mentions a crowd of his disciples and also a great multitude of people. Makes a distinction between them. So that seems to emphasize a distinction between those merely in the crowd and those who were his disciples. Well, the multitudes are those referenced at the end of chapter 4. The word disciple means learner or follower. Really a learning follower. And note the emphasis says that they were his disciples, indicating some level of commitment to Christ personally. His disciples. They were no longer just John the Baptist's disciples, following John and learning from him. No, John's now, they're following Christ. They're his disciples. Now the emphasis here is on those who were learning followers, coming to him as he was seated on the mount, perhaps near Capernaum. And often this was the posture of the rabbis or teachers when they went about to teach. Uh, They would sit down in a prominent place where they could easily be heard while the listeners would characteristically stand. Maybe we could try that. Okay, I as the teacher will now sit down. And especially since most of you are at home this morning, I want you now to get out of your recliners. And I want you to remain standing for the duration of the message. This will ensure that you stay awake. (laughs) 
Well, maybe we'll, uh, maybe we'll just stick with doctrine today and, and we'll try application on another day. How about that? You may all sit down in your recliners once again. Anyway, a little attempt at humor on a cold day. All right. Verse 2. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, this is uh, a verse that's simply saying, okay, he is now uh, taking the position of the teacher, ready to teach his kingdom ethics. In this case, uh, you know, uh, disciples are learners and they need a teacher. And in this case, the teacher is the king who's spelling out kingdom ethics for his disciples who had repented, evidently. And now he's saying, okay, here's what it should look like. Um, We're talking about the kingdom here. Repentance is necessary. And if you're a true repenter, here's how it should look in your life. Here is what is to define kingdom people. Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In verses 3 through 10, we have a total of eight beatitudes. The word beatitude comes comes from a Latin word meaning blessed or happy. Uh, A.W. Tozer makes an interesting observation here. He says, A fairly accurate description of the human race might be furnished to one unacquainted with it by taking the Beatitudes, turning them wrong side out, and saying, Here is the human race. For the exact opposite of the virtues in the Beatitudes are the very qualities which distinguish human life and conduct. That's an interesting observation. It's kind of like, if you just look at humanity, they're doing the exact opposite normally in terms of of how they carry on, how they live. The exact opposite of what's found in the Beatitudes. That's what Tozer is saying. Well, the word blessed means more than merely being happy. Uh, It signifies a state of well-being in terms of relationship with God. It signifies the favor of God resting upon a person resulting in deep spiritual joy. Notice he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. In the Old Testament, the poor, in a godly sense, were those who were destitute and cried out to God for help in dependence upon him. Christ here then makes application to those who acknowledge that they are spiritually destitute. And they look to God for salvation. And this fits the messianic emphasis seen in Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1. And there is some real correlation, it would seem, between Isaiah 61 and what we find in these first couple of verses here in in relationship to the Beatitudes. But note in Isaiah 61, 1, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Again, messianic prophecy here. Because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. You see, the poor, those that are spiritually bankrupt, they need good news. How we get out of this terrible situation where we are spiritually destitute? Well, the Messiah is here offering the good news. And we find this uh, cross-referenced here in Luke 4.17, where Christ went into the synagogue in Nazareth as he begins his Galilean ministry. And it says there in Luke 4.17, he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah And when he'd opened the book, he found the place. So it was very intentionally. He went right to where he found it in Isaiah chapter 61, where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Notice he begins, Blessed are the poor in spirit. To be poor in spirit means to be spiritually honest in recognizing that you are spiritually bankrupt. It's the opposite of being proud in spirit. I'm good enough. I'm okay. No, no. Uh, Poor in spirit acknowledges, humbly acknowledges, I don't have anything to offer God that would make myself right with him. It's the opposite of being spiritually self-sufficient and self-righteous. God, I'm totally soiled. All my righteousnesses are as filthy rags before you. I'm bankrupt. Help! That's where, that's where it starts. you got to acknowledge, I need a Savior. I can't get out of this situation. I can't make myself right. I need Jesus. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We have this uh, parable from Jesus. I'm just going to pick up on a couple of verses here. 
in Luke 18. But uh, Jesus told the parable about this, uh, this Pharisee and the tax collector. And uh, the Pharisee, you know, they went up to the temple to pray. And uh, this, this Pharisee, boy, it was, it was quite a prayer. It's so much about himself. Uh, he prayed thus with himself. That's a, that's a good introduction. I mean, he's, <laughs> the theme of his prayer is himself. Uh, I thank you, God, that I'm not like other people. I'm so much better. God, I thank you for how good I am. <laughs> That's what he's saying. I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. See this tax collector? I'm not like that guy. Oh, no, I'm so much better. And I thank you, God, that I am. He's a thankful guy. I fast twice in a week. So he's giving this resume to God. And God, look at everything I'm doing. I fast twice a week. Wow, impressive. I give tithes of all that I possess. I'm a giver, giver, giver. I, 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 I. And the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven. Wouldn't even look up. Just tumbled down. Beat on his breast. <sighs> Poor in spirit. I got nothing. I got nothing. Saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself, like the tax collector, will be exalted. This is what it means to be poor in spirit. This is who is going into the kingdom. Not the self-righteous who think, boy, it's all about me and look what a great guy I am. I'm holier than thou. No, no, no. It's the poor in spirit who admit, I'm spiritually bankrupt. The kingdom belongs to the humbled. This is the right place to start because this is where salvation begins. True saving faith acknowledges I'm spiritually bankrupt. I'm dependent upon God. I need a savior. I can't get to the kingdom by what I have to, by what I have to offer because I'm spiritually destitute. And as we flesh the story out, we know it's all because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. Uh, Jesus died for our sins. He paid our penalty so we can go into the kingdom. That's the rest of the story. But this is very humbling uh, to come to that point where you say, I got, I got nothing to offer. Only true believers come to this point where they are poor in spirit. Having humbled themselves before God as sinners in need of the mercy and grace of God. You headed for the kingdom? Well, if you are, you're poor in spirit. You've come to where you've humbled yourself and say, I got nothing to offer God that's going to be acceptable. It is the poor in spirit to whom the kingdom belongs. It is they who will be in the kingdom and not the self-righteous. Now, poor in spirit is descriptively characteristic of those who have been saved and are therefore headed to the kingdom. Wycliffe Bible Commentary says, The Beatitudes are not primarily promises to the individual, but a description a description of them. They do not show a man how to be saved, but describe the characteristics manifested by one who is born again. Second beatitude. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. There is a thematic connection between this beatitude and the messianic text of Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61 is set in the context of messianic restoration based on Israel's brokenness over their sin. And, and God is waiting, but Israel will eventually come to that point. Comfort is extended to those who mourn over their sin. But without the mourning, there is no messianic comfort. Repentance comes first, and then restoring comfort. Again, we note the connection to Isaiah chapter 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. We've noted that emphasis. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion. To give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called the trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. The mourning in view here is sorrow over sin. 
and the resulting consequences. This is the attitude of repentance corresponding to godly sorrow, which produces repentance that leads to salvation, as spelled out by by Paul in 2 Corinthians 7.10. Those who in repentance mourn over their sin will know messianic comfort, ultimately in the context of the kingdom. If you follow this through in Isaiah, uh, you know, Jesus stopped right before uh, the day of vengeance of our God. Because that's the tribulation period that ultimately brings Israel to repentance. And in that repentance, uh, as they mourn, as they're broken, they will be comforted in the kingdom. Those in repentance who mourn over their sin will know messianic comfort in the kingdom. As seen in Isaiah 61, it is the Messiah King who brings this comfort. It is the comfort of restoration that gives beauty for ashes and the oil of joy for mourning. Uh, A.W. Pink said, It is not the absence of sin, but the grieving over it which distinguishes the child of God from empty professors. Ah, that's a good point. Verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Who gets the earth? The meek. The word meek does not mean weak. It's the idea of power under control or in submission. Uh, The word meek was used in reference to a horse that had been broken to ride. The power of the horse was now under control, being controlled by a bit, bridle, and the rein of the rider. Meekness is the idea of reined in under the reign of God. That's a good definition. Meekness, reigned in under the reign of God. Meekness is power in submission to the governing control of God. Instead of taking matters into their own hands, the meek yield to God. Instead of asserting a self-agenda, they yield to God's agenda. They humble down under the reign of God. The Greek word translated as meek is also is often translated as gentle. But it's more than mere gentle. It is gentle because of submission to the control and reign of God. Uh, You've seen these rough guys who get saved and God does a work in their life. to They come under the reign of God and there's a gentleness that comes in there. Jesus is the ultimate example of meekness. The life of Christ epitomized submission to the Heavenly Father. He had power. But he never used it independently. He never rebelled. He never did his own self-assertive thing. God had the reins of his life. That's meekness. That's meekness. Christ said in Matthew eleven twenty nine, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle. There's a form of the word meek. For I am gentle... And lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Meekness is inherently related to lowliness of heart. And lowly is often translated as humble. To be lowly in heart is to have a humble heart. It is to humble down before God. It yields to God versus striving in the flesh to do it your own way. So a humble heart is one that is submissive to God. Both meekness and humble have the same basic idea of submission. Well, it's in learning to submit that we find rest for our souls. In saving faith, we submit to the gospel truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then as we are yoked up with Christ, we continue to learn from him the truth of what it means to be meek and lowly in heart. It is the meek who have come to submit to the rule of God's reign who will inherit the earth. The meek, not the strong, aggressive, harsh, tyrannical. It is the meek who will inherit the earth. David Jeremiah says, Today the meek inherit scorn and ridicule. One day they shall inherit the earth as they reign with Christ. Verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. To hunger and thirst for something is to desire it with a passion. It is to crave it. Kingdom citizens long for practical righteousness. 
They characteristically want to be right with God in their walk. Paul, in wrestling with sin, said, what I hate, that I do. The point is, he hated it when he did wrong. He had a hunger and thirst for righteousness. When God's people see wickedness all around, it bothers them. It's one of the mark of the true people of God. Even Lot, in the Old Testament, compromises he was. Living in the context of Sodom, it says that he tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. 2 Peter 2.8 It bothered him day and night. Tormented his righteous soul. That's the mark of the, of the righteous. They thirst, they hunger and thirst for righteousness. We read in 2 Peter, here's what uh, the heart of the true believer. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We're looking for that, huh? The next president is going to bring it in for us, right? Not so much. Don't hold your breath. I'm waiting for the king, not the president. (laughs) The deep desire for righteousness will be completely satisfied when the Messiah brings in the kingdom and all its fullness. Then God's people will be filled. That is completely satisfied. That is why John the Apostle, having seen the end of the story, said in Revelation 22, 20, even so come, Lord Jesus. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. When everything will be right in God's kingdom. What a day that will be. We will ultimately be filled. I like this quote from John MacArthur. When people ask me what appeals to me about heaven, it isn't the streets of transparent gold or gates made of pearls. It's the absence of sin. I'm tired of sin. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst thirst for righteousness. They will be filled. It's coming. This is the mark of the saved, those who will inherit the kingdom. They long for righteousness. You know, unbelievers, they long for more sin. They're trying to fill their lives, trying to find fulfillment in sin, more sin, more, and never finding it. We as God's people hunger and thirst for righteousness. This is where we find fulfillment, and ultimately so, in the kingdom. When we will be free from sin and the effects of sin. Blessed are the merciful. Verse 7. Blessed are the merciful. For they shall obtain mercy. When this beatitude addresses those who will show mercy. It speaks to those who have already received mercy. We do not earn salvation by being merciful. Rather because we have already been saved. We should then be merciful as The fruit. It's a matter of bearing good fruit. God expects his kingdom children to be merciful because they've received mercy. It's like I say, if you're saved by grace, be gracious. If you receive mercy, be merciful. And in the showing of mercy, God's children are blessed and receive even more mercy. We reap what we sow. And this is certainly true in relationship to kingdom rewards. Expositor's Greek Testament says, The chief reference may be to the mercy of God in the final awards of the kingdom, but the application need not be restricted to this. You know, it's a harsh old world out here. It really is. And it's God's people who are to be the balm of mercy. Where do we find mercy in this world? Who cares out here? Well, it's to be God's people. Uh, God wants to express himself to the world through his people. It's his kingdom people who are to be a merciful influence of kindness and caring in a God-honored way. That's part of our mission. Mercy, you see, cares about the hurting. It takes pity on those who are in misery because of their own foolishness. Spirios Zodiates says... The merciful are characterized by a caring attitude for those who are in misery. That is a great statement. The merciful are characterized by a caring attitude for those who are in misery. But there's more. To be merciful is to act compassionately. But it goes even further. 
being extended toward those who don't deserve it. It's one thing to have pity on those who deserve it. Who might that be? Nobody deserves it. But it's one thing to have pity on those who deserve it. But mercy extends pity and sympathy towards those who don't deserve it. You know what that's like? That's God-like. God cares about people who don't deserve his care. That's mercy. Aren't you glad that God didn't wait till you really got your act totally together? He says, well, now I guess you're worthy of a little mercy and grace for me. That's not how it works. Grace. In undeserved favor, God gives us what we don't deserve. That's grace. Mercy. In pity for us, in our misery, God doesn't give us what we do deserve. There's overlap. But in terms of emphasis, mercy has compassion on people in the misery of their sinfulness. While grace bestows the unmerited favor of forgiveness. Grace deals with guilt. Mercy with the consequences. Verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. You're going to see God in all of his glory. Intimately. Who's going to, who's going to experience this? Well, the pure in heart. You know... The heart does not have a very good reputation in the Bible. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart's deceitful above all things, the desperately wicked, who can know it? Jesus is talking about the pure in heart here. The heart is the core of our being related to the motives and the will of a person. A pure heart is not a perfect one because in this life, no one is perfect. We are in process, but we're not perfected yet. That awaits glorification. The emphasis, I think, here, when it talks about the heart, is that God wants the heart of a person. He's not interested in mere external religion. There's a real contrast between what Jesus is saying, his kingdom ethics, and what the scribes were teaching, as you work your way through the the Sermon on the Mount. In Samuel 16.7, 1 Samuel 16.7, it says that man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. Romans 10.10 says, It is with the heart that one believes unto righteousness. Acts 15.7 and 8 says, It is God who knows the heart and who purifies the heart by faith. The idea here of pure in heart is that of singleness of heart. It's honest to God. It's an undivided heart that is devoted to God above all. This person's conscience is clear in their sincere commitment to God. They're not playing games with God. you got a pure heart. The sense of a pure heart is spelled out by David, I think, in the Psalms. You know, after he fell deeply into sin, he talks about this is the, the fruit of repentance. This is what repentance looks like. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. Who is this person? In whose spirit there is no deceit. Stop playing games and say, I'm guilty. I'm not trying to play the game, the hypocrite. Psalm 51, 6, Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts. God wants us to be honest. God doesn't want us playing games with him. He wants an honest to God, loyal commitment. You see, game players are hypocrites. In contrast, a true saving faith is sincere and undivided. It is a pure heart commitment. And it's this type of heart commitment that you'll see God. Blessed are the sincere in heart, for they are the ones who will see God intimately in the kingdom. Verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. God is the ultimate peacemaker. God the Father is said to be the God of peace, Hebrews 13, 20. Jesus is called the Prince of Peace, Isaiah 9, 6. Ephesians 2, 14 says of Jesus, He Himself is our peace. The fruit of the Spirit includes peace, Galatians 5, 22. Thus, family likeness 
is seen in God's children seeking to be peacemakers. Hence, they are called sons of God. This is godlike and therefore indicative of those who are truly his children. Now, peacemakers are not compromisers, but rather seek reconciliation and peace as a top priority without compromising God's truth. We desire that people be brought into a peace relationship with God through repentance and faith in Jesus. How does that happen? Well, Paul is very clear. Romans 5.1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We as God's children should seek to get along with everyone. If at all possible, as much as it depends on us. Now, we can't help what other people do. And some people get up in the morning just to find somebody to, to you know, take a stick and poke it in their eye. <laughs> there are people like that out here. You know those people with the sticks. You see them, hopefully you see them coming at you. <laughs> but uh, we're not to be those people. As far as our part, we want to be peacemakers. Tremendous emphasis in the scriptures on this. If we get to them. There we go. Proverbs 16, 7. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. And what? They're peacemakers. Romans 12, 18. If it is possible, and it's not always, but if it is possible, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. No, you can't, you can't help what the other person does, but as much as it depends on you. And then in uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. And James 3, 17 and 18, but the wisdom that is from above, that, that's God's wisdom, is first pure, first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy, good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. Now, the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Tremendous emphasis on being a peacemaker in relationship to the wisdom from above. D.A. Carson says, this beatitude must have been shocking to the zealots when Jesus preached it, when political passions were inflamed. <laughs> yeah, there seems to be a lot of application through the centuries for that. And again, Carson says, instead of delighting in division, bitterness, strife, or some petty divide and conquer mentality, disciples of Jesus delight to make peace whenever possible. Now, we are to be peacemakers, but that doesn't mean we seek peace at all costs. You know, sometimes God's people consider, uh, don't consider the whole counsel of God or the context of what is being said. To misapply being a peacemaker in some contexts amounts to flagrant compromise. For example, to continue to let a divisive person have their way in the name of peace is wrong. And lots of times it happens that way. Because, you know, it's easy to kind of take advantage of peace-loving people who want to be peacemakers. You kind of bully your way in and do certain things and nobody's going to do anything because, after all, they should be just peace-loving people. And we are. But uh, a divisive person is not just to have their way. Titus 3.10 says, quote, Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition. The word divisive is the Greek word heretikos, which the authorized version translated as heretic. However, in view here is not so much bad theology as it is bad character. Yes, bad theology must not be tolerated, but neither can bad character represented in bad behavior. Proverbs 6, 16, uh, 6 uh, 16 through 19 names seven things that are an abomination to the Lord, including the one who sows discord among brethren. A divisive person's actions are not to be tolerated. You must not say, well, in the name of peace, we must just tolerate it. No! Such a person must be rejected. Because Titus 3.11 goes on to say they are warped and sinning. Sometimes you don't even want to call sin what it is. You know, Charles Spurgeon was involved in uh, what is known as the downgrade controversy. He belonged to the Baptist Union. There was all kinds of compromise coming in. And Charles Spurgeon took a radically strong stand, as it was considered. 
as, as far as the compromise that was coming in. The, the Baptist Union got together and they voted. I think it was only seven people that voted with Spurgeon. And huge, hundreds of people voted against him, including his own brother. Voted against him to censure him for not being loving. Spurgeon said, history will pro- prove me right. And it did. But in the midst of that downgrade controversy, you know what Spurgeon said? He said, the wisdom that comes from above is first pure, then peaceable. There you go. You know, that's kind of how it's stated here, right? Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers. First pure, then peaceable. All this to say, yes, we are to be peacemakers if at all possible. This is God-like. But you know what? Even God demands repentance. Right? You say, well, God's just, he's just a loving Heavenly Father. Everybody's okay. No, they're not. God demands repentance. We are to be peacemakers. But that is different than saying we seek peace at all costs. We must ever be peacemakers in keeping with the whole counsel of God. We want to get along, if at all possible, but not at the expense of God's word. Not when it requires compromise. And there's tremendous pressure in these days. <laughs> I'd like to have a conversation with Charles Spurgeon about the things he was going through in terms of the downgrade controversy. I mean, we've, we're not only on a downgrade, we've gone over the cliff in our day. I mean, it's crazy what's going on out here in the name of Christ in in supposedly Christian circles. Sometimes in the name of tough love, in the name of purity, we have to take a stand and say, I can't go along with this. This is wrong. So yes, by all means, peacemakers, blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be called the sons of God. This This is what is characteristic of the sons of God. But there is a whole council of God to be considered as well. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And I think that's kind of interesting that that follows on the heels of being a a peacemaker. If you're really going to be a a peacemaker in keeping with the whole counsel of God, it doesn't mean that everybody's going to say, well, you're just the greatest. The world's going to applaud you and love you. They're not. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, it's expected that God's people will stand for righteousness' sake and be persecuted for it. I remember someone sharing with me, uh, you know, when they have all this talk about uh, homosexual marriage and how it was being legalized. And, and uh, this person who does not know me at all said to somebody else in the church, I am sure that Pastor Dwight will go along with homosexual marriage. And <laughs> I, I was like, oh, my goodness. Uh, This person asked me if I would. I mean, legitimately. Asking me. What? That's not... How could I possibly think I could be faithful and go along with that? Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Paul said, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But in this persecution, the people of God are blessed because the kingdom belongs to them. It's not those who just skate along to get along who are going into the kingdom. It's those who take a stand for righteousness. Any false prophet can compromise. Jesus said, woe unto you when all men shall speak well of you. For so did their fathers to the false prophets. It's the false prophets who are the popular ones, not the true prophets. Well, building on this, Jesus gets even more personal. Whereas the Beatitudes in verses 3 through 10 are in the third person... Jesus now speaks more directly in the second person, you, in verses 11 and 12. Thus, Jesus hones in and emphasizes this point of being persecuted. I mean, really, you talk about all the Beatitudes, and you have a little snippet as far as the qualifier. But when it comes to persecution, there's a real emphasis here, a major emphasis here. You know, I, I think we probably should try, kind of prepare for a little bit of persecution. I mean, praise the Lord, we've had freedoms in this country. I don't know if it's always been good for, you know, uh, the quality of Christianity. It's easy to get soft. 
Not that I want persecution. I don't. I'm not, I'm not voting for it. <laughs> but it's just kind of a reality. Verse 11, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Don't expect the world to give you fair treatment. Say they're lying. Yeah, that's what they do. That's what the devil does. That's what his people do. Now, verse 10 emphasizes persecution for righteousness sake. That is for for what is right according to God's standards generally. And if you just take a stand for simple morality, such as biblical marriage, or you take a stand against immorality, I mean, let's just get right down to it. If you want to take a stand and say, there's there's only uh, two genders. Are you kidding me? That is not to be tolerated. Uh, You are, you're talking generic terms now. Uh, We should, I guess, refer to each other as it. (laughs) Not he or she anymore. And then you can decide what you want to be, a he or a she. Crazy. The world is completely crazy out here. But they say we are. And if you take a stand for righteousness, they will seek to persecute you. Now, if you don't want to really take a stand, you can probably skate along and kind of be yellow, mellow yellow, and, and just kind of skate through unharmed pretty much. But if you're going to stand, yeah, you'll have a target on you. So yeah, uh, verse 10 emphasizes persecution for righteousness sake. However, in verse 11, Jesus makes it very personal. That, he, that is, he makes it about association with him. Are, are you a Jesus person? Do people see you as a Jesus person? But you might want to be careful. You just might want to talk like the politician to generically about God. And may God bless America. Yeah, right. When's the last time you heard a politician say, may Jesus do something? <laughs> like humble us and bring us to repentance. They never talk about Jesus. Almost never. When he says here, revile, revile means to insult. Ridiculing with insults and persecution tend to go together. And then Jesus adds and say, all kinds of evil against you falsely. You know what that's called? Slander. Slander. You ever been the victim of slander? It's one of the most hurtful things. Few things are more damaging and hurtful than slander. And by the way, the name devil means slander. It's what he does. It's what he specializes in. But then Jesus very specifically says, he is addressing the case when people are persecuted in this way for my sake. This happens because of association with Jesus. But in God's sovereign eternal ways, this ultimately turns out to be the position of being blessed. And he tells us why in the next verse. But before I get to the next verse, note uh, a footnote here. Note that Jesus here indicates that sometimes persecution takes the form of verbal persecution. The emphasis in this verse is on verbal. Blessed are you when they revile, when they say all kinds of evil against you falsely. This is verbal persecution that's being emphasized here. You see, it's not always just violence. Say, well, they drug him off, put him in the prison. Yeah, that's, that's persecution too. But here, the emphasis is verbal. In fact, probably most persecution is verbal, involving insult, ridicule, and slander. Verse 12. This is so interesting. Uh, I I wonder uh, how obedient we could be to this verse. You know, we tend to whine and scream and howl and cry when things are kind (laughs) of, the the clamps are kind of being put down. But Jesus says, when they do this to you and you are being so wrongly treated, falsely accused and slandered, because you're identifying with Jesus, It's time to throw a party. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Are you kidding me? Why? For great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. When we are verbally persecuted for Christ's sake, we should rejoice and be exceedingly glad for two reasons. Number one, our reward will be great in heaven. God sees what's going on. Maintain an eternal perspective. Be faithful. The day of reward is coming, and that is something to celebrate. It's going to be worth it all when we get to heaven, whatever we've gone through. 
Great is your reward. God's going to reward, not just a little, say, boy, it was, it was just slightly worth it. <laughs> Don't know. Great is your reward. Number two, in enduring verbal persecution, we are in good company. Because this is how the prophets of old were also persecuted. Say, so how did they treat those guys? They slandered them. What an honor to be in the company of holy prophets. Note the parallel here, by the way. The prophets who were persecuted for being faithful to God, while we are persecuted for our faithfulness to Jesus. This, in effect, puts Jesus on par with God, which he is. This emphasis on persecution certainly shows that this discourse has application to the present time. You know why? Because in the kingdom, this isn't going to be going on. You understand when the king comes, he's going to rule with a rod of iron. This isn't going to be going on. No, no, no. There won't be any more persecution of God's people in the kingdom. I'm assuring you of that. So that's why I'm saying this definitely is application to where we live now. Well, in closing, let me make some application. Someone may say, well, if Christ was really presenting kingdom ethics, then what does that have to do with us in the church age? Well, thank you for asking. The answer is this. Even though the kingdom proper is future, as God's children, as the body of Christ, as uh, the bride of Christ, we are kingdom citizens and we are to live like it. Paul said those who practice ungodly behavior as a pattern of life will not inherit the kingdom. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. In contrast, those who practice righteousness give evidence that they will inherit the kingdom. In Colossians 4, 11, Paul said of his fellow workers that they were, quote, workers for the kingdom of God. Dr. Michael Vlock, I, I really like uh, Dr. Vlock. Um, actually, Dr. Vlock preached one time here at Southview many years ago, uh, way back in the other little church. <laughs> and uh, anyway, so he's uh, on, you know, he has a master's seminary there, one of the profs there. But anyway, uh, notice what he says. One must be saved and evidence righteous behavior to enter the kingdom. On the other hand, those who are characterized by evil deeds show that the kingdom does not belong to them. These truths do not indicate that salvation or kingdom entrance is based on works, but they show that by faith, kingdom citizens have the power of the new covenant ministry of the Holy Spirit in their lives, bringing forth righteous behavior. By the way, commentators point out that the fruit of the Spirit could just as well be called the fruit of the kingdom. And the reason for this is because the new covenant ministry in which the Spirit is prominent is a major component of kingdom truth. Well, it's with all this in view that Paul makes this statement in Romans 14. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. What Paul is saying is that we as God's people in the church age should live in light of a kingdom ethic. Because in fact, we are kingdom people. We are headed for the kingdom and therefore should live accordingly. And Paul is quite consistent with this. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, he says, As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This is where you are headed. Therefore, you should live accordingly. One Bible scholar writes, quote, Matthew chapters 5 through 7 represent the Magna, the Magna Carta, that is the, the great charter, of the king. The Sermon on the Mount presents the king's description of true repentance, of a lifestyle that pleases God. In reality, it lays out the kingdom eth ethics of how God's people are now expected to live in light of their kingdom citizenship. There's an old saying, it's actually an old spiritual, that has the line that says, Everybody talking about heaven ain't going there. How true that is. If we truly know the king and are headed for the kingdom, it should be obvious in our lives. It should be reflected in how we live out our lives in relationship to the Beatitudes. The descriptions laid out there should be reflected in our lives. You say, well, I, 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 I'm a total believer, but there's no mercy in my life. Well, 
Maybe you need to check yourself. We live by a whole different ethic than does the world. This is a quote from Thomas Vincent. He was a a Puritan minister in the 1600s. And he said in that day, It is the folly of our day that we think we can have none of his kingship in this life and yet have some claim to part of his kingdom in the next. You know, some things never change. He wrote this in the 1600s. It's the folly of our day that we think we can have none of his kingship in this life and yet claim to have some part of his kingdom in the next. But for those who reject the rule of the Lord Jesus now, there is only the fearful expectation of the fury of the wrath of God, the judge of heaven and earth. Well, the Beatitudes. How should we then live? Repent. The kingdom's at hand. And if you are a true repenter, this is how it should demonstrate itself in your life. Kingdom people live according to kingdom ethics. Well, God help us to do so. Let's have our closing song and then I'll close this in a word of prayer.